Thank you. If you will open your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans in chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, I'll be looking primarily at verses 18 down through the end of the chapter to verse 32 as we are in our third sermon in this particular uh, book as we uh, have just begun and introduced uh, the book of, or the letter really, uh, to the Romans by Paul. And uh, <clears throat> we've uh, worked through that. I'll do a little bit of review in just a moment and then we'll get into the text. But let's, uh, let's go to the Word and read what thus says the Lord. This is God's holy Word. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What could, be, what could be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. <clears throat> they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. Amen. Well, as always, in working through a book, you find the discovery of the Scriptures and the study of them to be eye-opening and heart-opening. Um, especially in a text like this that brings to bear the great need for salvation. In particular, though, what we find is, in working through a book, the advantage that we have is that we have already uh, discovered things that help us put this in context. And uh, the first thing we looked at by way of review is we looked at the introduction where Paul gave basically a threefold description, including his call You'll see there that he was a servant of Christ Jesus. He called himself, called to be an apostle. He was specially commissioned for this by the Lord Jesus Christ. The apostles formed the foundation of the church together with the prophets, and they have passed on. And so that work has been done. And the apostle is also said to be set apart for the gospel of God, for they <clears throat> set forth the teaching that the church has now for centuries held or been held by. He doesn't spend a lot of time directly speaking of himself, but he certainly does speak of himself quite a bit 
in the beginning of the letter, but it's more about himself in the gospel. He goes directly to the gospel, and he basically indicates that this gospel can't be understood without the doctrine of the Trinity, and he rolls right into God and what God has done and what the Son has done and what the Spirit has done. He in particular focuses upon Jesus Christ, who is the central central um, aspect of this gospel. Uh, but God, <clears throat> God reveals this gospel to us, and he is now um, commissioned, that is Paul, to be set apart for the gospel. He was at one time supposedly set apart for the law as a Pharisee. And the language is specifically playing on that type of word for the word for Rizzo, which speaks of set apart, saying of the gospel now, was what he formerly was as a Pharisee set apart for the law. He's no longer wanting to be known for the law. He's wanting to be known for the gospel. And this led to some assumptions about Paul. And there were certain assumptions he he will address throughout the letter of Romans because, after all, there were plenty of rumors about Paul, as we discovered in the book of Acts. And many would um, have accused Paul of maybe being soft on sin, not really being intense about obeying the law. And he... He deals with that pretty quickly when he speaks about this gospel as uh, preached so that it would bring about the obedience of the faith for the sake of his name, literally his knowledge, um, among all the nations. Now, <clears throat> as he makes this intro, he's speaking to a people. This gospel involves um, a message that is meant for um, sinners, for the ungodly, for the weak, that are unable to help themselves at all. They're dead in their sins. And God's gospel makes people alive. It is the power of God for salvation, as we see at uh, verse 16 and 17. But before he gets to that, by way of review again, he picks up in verse, um, verse 8 there, and he puts the word first, indicating something he normally does in letters. He does it in Timothy when he says, first of all, letting, uh, calling people to pray, men in particular, to pray without anger, and especially for their government leaders because they want a peaceable life and ability to spread the gospel in such a way. And he never comes to like second. He never comes to third. He just says first. It's just a, it's a way that he wrote, and you can tell it's Paul. And so uh, <clears throat> it's, it's kind of like preachers. A lot of times we just have one point. It's the first one, and the rest we forget, and we just kind of call it a day. But uh, or at best, most of the time, the, the first point we've spent our week in study on, and so we have much to say about that, second, third, fourth, or wherever, uh, kind of gets lost in the wind. But nonetheless, Paul was uh, an apostle under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He wrote down exactly what God wanted us to read, hear, and know. And in this section that we already uncovered, briefly we find that he works through... Um, what this letter is about. Why did he write Romans? And uh, much to my surprise, he didn't write Romans as an evangelistic tract. He did not write it in order to win people to the faith. He wrote it to strengthen the church existing in the faith. It was written um, to strengthen existing believers in Rome. And what a place Rome was that they would have to be strong. They would have to be built up. And what this teaches us um, obviously, is that uh, the gospel is the means, the power in which the church looks to so that they might grow in the faith. And they need to grow to develop stability 
and strength and the ability to carry out uh, their glorious mission in this world individually and as a church. So Paul's writing this letter um, specifically to build them up, to strengthen them, and also to be strengthened. But he has a very specific purpose related to that, and that is it's not the letter itself that is the mission completed. It's the letter preparing him to come and be in person to preach this gospel. So we might want to say, okay, Romans is all about the gospel. And in one sense, certainly that could be true. But he's not writing Romans to give them Romans. He's writing Romans to bring the gospel to them in person, to preach among them. And he says, so he might be mutually encouraged by them, showing that he himself as a sheep needs to be encouraged, that he is under that same shepherd the church is. And as he comes... He believes that it's the in-person preaching of the gospel that accomplishes the strengthening and growth of the church. And there is no substitute. And that's why he turns and he says, where you're going to find the strength is in the preaching of this powerful gospel and nowhere else. And we began to go into verse 18 showing that in the opposite extreme, you're not going to find it in the world over if you look for it. What you need, you're going to find it in the in-person preaching of the gospel among the church. That's where you're going to be strengthened and grown and built up. That's the means in which God has ordained. And that's the way we can see through Scripture He has always done this. He does not simply send a letter, though He did use letters and He did use prophecies written, but he, he, He sends a man. He sends Moses to the people. He sends him to show up. He doesn't just send a, a letter to say, let the people go. He sends a man to proclaim in person. He didn't just say, Elijah, go ahead and just write a letter off to those prophets of Baal in order to fight that battle. No, he sends a man to confront in person. We find that even in the history of our nation, the history of revivals in the world, Whitfield didn't send a letter and say, you need to believe the gospel of Jesus. No, he was sent to be there. He came. God sent Whitfield. God sent Wesley. He sent men to proclaim. And the basis of this is that the church has understood it takes uh, men showing up to proclaim the gospel to do the strengthening the church requires after they're saved. And the conversion of people requires men to preach, yes. Faith comes by hearing hearing the Word of Christ is written in this book, but it's written in this book not as an evangelistic tool. It's written in this book as a building up tool. The book of Romans, therefore, is written to prepare the people of Rome that are believers, that are loved by God, affectionately loved by the Lord and by the Apostle, to prepare for that visit of a face-to-face, in-person preaching of the gospel so they could be strengthened appropriately. And if we keep that in mind, it will help us keep our bearings about everything that he's saying. And, and again, as often the case, when we're studying through a book, we find things that, that we have maybe taken for granted or we just simply didn't get by going and, and pick-piecing parts of a book out, or accepting simply how everybody's used it for years. Romans is used to prepare people to appreciate the in-person preaching of the gospel 
because it is the thing, the only thing, where God has rested His authority and His power to strengthen the church. And that is just mind-blowing to me in the study of this book already. Um, And now, with that in mind, we move to this section of the powerlessness of man's gospel. Uh, The powerlessness of, of the world to offer a message uh, spiritually that's act, able to build men up and strengthen and edify men to be what they're called to be before God. And if, again, it makes sense of this text, this text often is taken to be stages of history that almost leads to a hopeless view of humanity. Um, but it's really showing that Humanity and the world is not the place you're going to get the power to be strengthened as a church. And it, it almost seems to go without saying that. But the Spirit of God wrote these things down because we needed to hear the obvious. We needed to hear the very plain truth. That by the way, you're not going to find what, need, what you need to strengthen you as a people of God out in the world. Here's why. Here's why. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This simply means in their suppression of the truth that they're holding back the truth. You need the truth to strengthen you. They're holding back the truth that would strengthen you. You're not going to find it there. But it goes on. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. You have to look at this historically. We want to always read it into our own day right away, but that's not the intent of the text. He's at least speaking historically of the people of Rome first. And he is speaking uh, at least of the history of humanity as a whole from creation onward. They naturally, post the fall, are inclined to hold back the truth. Now, I've heard many of sermons that speak about this idea of it's like a spring holding down the truth and all that. But that's not really the the accurate representation of what he's saying. He's speaking about holding back the truth, if you would, in in the picture, just like Rome endeavored to hold back the truth about the resurrection of Jesus. They did everything they could. Everything they could to make sure there would be no news that would get out about Christ rising from the dead. They made sure that there were soldiers at the tomb. They sealed that tomb. They made sure that even after the resurrection happened, that they made up a rumor to spread so that there would be no way that this thing could go any further than their legislation. But we know that it couldn't stop that. right? And the suppression of the truth by men throughout history is unable to stop the truth to build up the church because God's Love and truth always triumph. Now, if we go on to the next verse, it says His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature. And I'm leading up to the the issue of gratitude. So, just working our way through the next verse. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power. Notice that word power there again being brought up. And divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without... Excuse. Now, 
contrary to the opinion that the world and its religion began with polytheism, with many gods, what this text is saying, it did not begin that way. It began with one God and it digressed into many gods and we'll see many sins. Why is that the case? For all they, although they knew God, here's key, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And there's the key. It's back in verse 5 where Paul gives gratitude that, that faith had been given to even Rome. Even among Rome. The, the citadel. Uh, the citadel, if you would, where evil would reign. The, the empire of Rome and the very center of Rome has now has a church, and not just a church, a vibrant church in Rome. And it's fulfilling the very prophecy Jesus made. The gospel would go to the, uh, be proclaimed throughout the world and the end would come. And that end would be immediately um, depicted as the destruction upon Jerusalem that we see AD 70 and also eventually the destruction of Rome itself. And... So we see that there is um, something happening in the spread of the gospel. And Paul hasn't even been to this place. And yet there's a church established there. He knew about 25 to 26 people there very intimately. We find by the end of the book. Um, and so the church had to be um, quite of some size. And it was established by others. He was not coming to plant the church like he normally would. He was coming to strengthen the church and he... He was doing it, going to bring the gospel and preaching it because that's the means by which we've learned. He's saying you, you can't find it out here in the world. He's thankful. He's grateful. He goes out of his way to make this known. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. He thanks God for them because of their faith, which immediately indicates that faith is a gift from God and it has been proclaimed throughout the world. What is that? It's the known world, the Roman Empire. The same word for world used back in Matthew 24, 14 when it speaks about that the end would come once this happened. So we're talking about these are biblically in Romans, the last days Jesus referred to. And there's going to be an end to this. And as you have this happen, he is indicating that at the root of all the world's idolatry and all the world's sin from the very beginning is an ingratitude for the one true God that they knew existed. And instead of being grateful for what was obviously made by him, they chose to do everything in their sinful power to hold back the truth about him. And as a result, it produced the idolatry, the many religions, the many gods. And any time you have ingratitude in the heart of men 
For the God who created all things, it produces many gods and many sins. You're not going to find what you need to strengthen as a church there. You're not going to find that from this world. They claim to be wise and they became fools. The definition of a fool written, he believes in his heart there is no God. That's a fool. Foolish ways. Foolish living in ways that do not acknowledge God. And they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. So what did they do? They worshipped men. They esteemed men to be great and they made images of men and they worshipped men. They made images of birds, creation. They worshipped them, animals. They worshipped them, creeping things. And Calvin does a good service here because he keeps it in context on commenting on this because he says, take a look at Augustine, City of God. There's a perfect depiction of this. He goes through quite a book. It's pretty substantial. I've just started my way through the City of God. I've not read all the way through it. But, but what I can see in surveying the whole of it is it's a history of really pagan idolatry and philosophies that have failed. It's really a history of this kind of stuff. And Calvin gives Augustine the city of God among a few other historical um, means where you can find this very thing that has happened. Rome was full of this kind of stuff. They were worshiping men. They were worshiping birds. They were worshiping animals and creeping things. They were doing all that. That's where ingratitude for the one true God first leads to idolatry, the worship of many gods. Powerless gods. Gods that are no gods at all, we find. And, and after that's done, after that's done, ingratitude leads men to all sorts of sins. So it goes into the sins. In particular, God gave them up. And this is a judicial excommunication of the people. At one point, temporarily, we see that God excommunicated the whole human race. Now, people take, um, maybe excommunication sounds too religious. Um, What we mean by that is we mean to say that God removed uh, people from having uh, fellowship and standing with Him and turned them over to Satan's domain. And at one point, that was the case because of sin. The very first parents we had, Adam and Eve, they sinned, and all humanity experienced a removal from the favorable presence of God. They were put outside the camp. They were put outside the people of God. They were put outside of what God intended to dwell with man, Emmanuel, and to be with the people and for them to enjoy His, his presence under His rule and, and to do so ongoing. And so instead of that, they, they being ungrateful, coveted after that which Satan enticed them towards, coveted after something that they didn't have. That's what covetousness is idolatry. 
They wanted what they didn't have. Though they had everything they needed. But they wanted what they didn't have. And it's the utter expression of ingratitude. That's why it, it is idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry. And as a result, they are put outside. And I want to labor this point because to be outside of the church is to be in this position. It's to be, it's to be under the domain of Satan. It's to be outside of the favorable presence of God. It's to be outside the church. So yes, people take being outside the church lightly. Because had they taken it seriously, one, they would run towards the idea of being included in the body. And after being included in the body, they would fear greater than anything on this earth of ever being excluded from the body because they had committed such worldly sins. And so take it light if you want to. God doesn't take it lightly. Paul doesn't take it lightly. To be outside of the family is to be part of another family. To be part of a, another domain. It's to be under the rule of another. And so the idea of being given over, this word is used. This word giving up is used for the word for what we call modern day church discipline. When Paul said that there had been flagrant worldly sin within the church that the church should deal with right away. He said, turn that one over to Satan. And that's the word. Give that person up to Satan. But you know the glory of the gospel here is the same word is used right within the book of Romans. I think it's around chapter 4 or so where it says, the Lord gave him up for us all, speaking of Jesus Christ. And here it is that Christ was given up, given over for us. That if we're ever brought in, if we ever treasure what it means to be part of the family of God, it is because there was one named Jesus Christ who was given up for our sins in our place. So that in reality... Once we become part of the family of God, it's unthinkable that we would not labor and fight to remain in that family, visibly and behind the scenes. It would matter to the person who understands this. Why is that important when Paul comes to preach? Because he's preparing them to appreciate the in-person preaching the gospel to strengthen their souls. And if they don't have some preparation in the area of what it means to be a church, 
And if they don't see what's at stake and they don't see what they ought be grateful for, well, ingratitude always leads to many gods and many sins. And if it's a struggle for the church of God, what is it for the world? So, they became these worshipers of all these types of things. And gratitude led them there. Covetousness beneath the scenes of it led them there. And it says, Therefore God gave them a lust of their hearts, impurity, dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Seems to be a progression we'll look into here. Um, this, based on the Greek, the most reputable Greek text, it's not speaking about that they're abusing each other. It's that at this point, there, there's a self-abuse of, of them, themselves, abusing of themselves by themselves. So it leads, yes, to many gods, but the first place that sin starts to take place is just in the, 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 the sins against one's own self. They're dishonoring. Um, they're here according to God's judicial action. God is involved here. He's, he's judicially turned them over to this. And... They're dishonoring their bodies among themselves. And it's because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And notice what Paul does in the middle of this. The moment he mentions creator, the God, God is creator. He stops and he exalts. He said, who is blessed forever. Amen. He can't in the midst of, of, um, I wish more studies did this because if you've ever had to study a lengthy treatment of the doctrine of man, it's the most depressing thing in the world. You need somebody to stand up in the middle and remind us of God. Because the picture here is, is, is an awful picture of ingratitude and idol worship. And here Paul gives us an example of, of what it is to teach on this. Don't forget the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. It's worshiping in the midst of it. Yes, be sorrowful about the state of humanity since the fall, but there is a Creator who is blessed forever who deserves the amen, the affirmation. And then he comes back to, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. So they are once serving themselves utter self-abuse. And then what happens is their women are mentioned. And this is falsely used to speak about um, homosexuality among women or lesbianism. And that's not what this verse speaks of. It speaks of something preceding the second, next verse about homosexuality. So what is he talking about here? That women, it says, women are committing a sin here. They're being judicially given over to this sin. They're exchanging the natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. So you start with self-abuse and then you've moved now to the women in the society who are doing what is unnatural. What is that? Well, they're allowing for certain practices in their marriage 
and in their marriage bed that are unnatural. These would be those married. They would be uh, those who were in a married relationship and, and some that aren't. But they, as women, were reading the history of what has happened. And this ingratitude led to many gods and many sins. And one of the many sins that really marked humanity was that the women began to permit things in their marriage bed that were unnatural. Now, this begins to make sense when you move to the next thing. Because what was unnatural? What were they doing that was unnatural? Well, when you move into the next verse, that's usually the focus of controversy. It says, men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. And now men are having sexual relations with men. Well, where did they learn that? Well, according to the text, they learned that in their own marriage beds. When their women began to do things that now they're able to do with other men. It's unnatural. And when you do unnatural things in your marriage bed here, you see consequentially, you start seeing it's not a far jump into homosexuality. And that's, that's mind-blowing. Never would have saw that without a study of a book to realize that Christians, we ought to really be serious about what goes on in our marriages. We ought to be serious about what happens. Our mar- the marriage bed is to be holy. And it is only to have that which is natural, beautiful. The, the natural sex in the marriage bed is beautiful. It is a wonderful thing. But to do unnatural things that can simply be replicated out in homosexual relationships is unnatural and wicked. It didn't start overnight with men having passion for men. It started in marriages with women who sought to please their husbands And probably, from what I read historically, not even probably, it's historically documented, the reason why the Roman women were doing this was largely to avoid pregnancy responsibility. But to be able to sexually satisfy their husbands without any consequences. Therefore, they subjected themselves to practices in the marriage bed to avoid the natural fruit of marriage. Nothing new under the sun, right? But we're not talking, I'm not talking about today. I'm talking foremost about Rome in this first century. Don't forget that. Don't jump to application today that we're talking about what Paul's dealing with here. He's saying to this people, this Roman society, that the reason you're in the boat you're in is because foremost, you were ungrateful to the Creator who made all these things for you to enjoy. It led to many gods, and now it's led to many sins. And so don't get your eyes fixated, Romans, out there in the world to find power in a people that is being given over to all this stuff that brings nothing but sorrow and powerlessness to ever overcome it. Because now their marriages are affected and now some of them don't have marriages because now the men are leaving the marriages and they're going out and having 
passions with men. And it's destroying the family. And I think that it's just brilliant how God puts this in context for us in the first century. And He does it because He loves us. He wants us to see in this first century letter to the Romans how there is really no power out here in these things that are being given over. The power comes when the gospel is preached in person to build up and strengthen the church so that they're able to view these things appropriately, but not just view these things appropriately. But when the gospel comes in person, Paul, of course, he's laying groundwork here, but he's going to preach a gospel that's going to make these men and women of first century Rome have glorious marriages and worship the one true God and be grateful in all circumstances. This gospel is going to do in person what the world cannot do, no matter how many people they would attest to have. So they commit their shameless acts with men receiving in their themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And instead of being filled with what they were made to be filled with, the glory of God and the Spirit of God, they are filled with all manner of unrighteousness. And this list just goes on and on. Unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, which we've mentioned is a key sin, malice, just hatred, uh, envy. People are just jealous and envious. It's what put Christ on the cross, murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. All, I mean, you see the first table of the law, the second table of the law, all addressed in this chapter. Ingratitude towards the one true God leads to all all the mess in the world leaves the, leaves the world powerless to help anybody. Deceit, maliciousness, gossips, people that literally um, speak in whispers so to divide and ruin good friendships. The world's full of that. Slanders. They don't stop at wanting to just destroy people's reputation. Haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Call yourself a Christian in a Roman society as a young person. You couldn't have a habitual way of being disobedient to your parents. This would strike them. When Paul showed up to preach, those those kids are going to want to hear, where's the power for me to obey mom and dad at? He's preparing them. He's saying it's not here. It's not in the world. It's not in these things. You're powerless to do and carry out what you were made for. And so you're going to need, you're going to need the preaching of the gospel in person, the assembly and accountably. It goes on, um, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And though they know God's righteous decree, and here's where the, one of the key theological ideas is, is that, that the issue 
the issue of man, the problem of man in the first century in Rome was not an intellectual problem and therefore it doesn't have an intellectual solution. It was a moral problem and it required a spiritual solution. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. That's how the envious work. They want to find people that are doing bad with them so they can shame those who look better than them. Their whole life is powerless. It offers no strength to anybody. It destroys lives. It doesn't build lives. And how much is this Roman audience going to appreciate when Paul comes and he stands to proclaim the good news that's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek, because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, strengthening of faith. And as it is written by Habakkuk, in a world that's being invaded by Babylon, God's supposed professing people being invaded. He knows the promises that God's glory will one day cover the globe. It's not yet. And so he says, I trust. I'll trust. I'll trust when there's nothing in the stall. I'll trust when there's nothing on the table per se. I'll trust when I see nothing of it. I'm going to live by faith. That's the book where this is quoted. He's saying the just will live by faith. That's how you're going to live in the meantime. And you're going to need this gospel. And you're going to need this gospel not just depicted on a printed page. You're going to need this gospel that comes with a man preaching it to an assembly that he needs the strength of that assembly to strengthen him by the same gospel. And this whole community revolving around the gospel of Jesus Christ, treasuring the inclusion of those who trust God by faith in His Son Jesus Christ who are marked out as those not given over to the world, not given over to the domain of Satan, but given over to live for the glory of God and are able, while they do sorrow at looking at this powerless, this world taken by darkness, they have and take themselves joy in their God that can never be taken away from them. Ingratitude is a really serious sin. If it's hard for God's people to be grateful for all the blessings we have, what about the world? Well, here you have it. The world in first century is the epitome of ingratitude towards the God who created them, and they have done everything they can in their power to hold back the truth, the very thing that would heal them and set them free. In application to the church, you have received the truth. You know the truth and the truth has set you free in the gospel. And even though you're not all that you have been made to be, God is giving you the means to grow into that man and that woman to glorify God in this world by being part of his body visibly on earth and abiding under His Word, and hearing the Gospel proclaimed, however imperfectly, it is the Gospel proclaimed in person 
that these type of words make us appreciate more and more so that we are grateful, grateful that God is still sending and still setting up churches with gospel preaching. And it ought to inspire us. It ought to give us some joy. Let's stand together. Father, I've delivered unto Your people that which we know confidently is part of the building project of our lives, the strengthening of our souls, the shaping of us for Your glory. Please may Your hand of blessing now be upon it. And may You, by Your Spirit, strengthen us in the Gospel Encourage us among each other that we might stir each other up to love and good works all the more as the day draws near. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for your apostle whom you sent to Rome. And thank you, Lord, for the faith of these throughout the whole world who call on your name then and even today. We give you all the praise. And we now turn to that which represents the body of our Lord and the blood of our Lord shed for us of the new covenant that all who call on your name, who trust in your son, who look to you alone for the grace they need, we now prepare our hearts to come. We care about each other, but most of all, we care about you, what you think, what pleases you. As we come to this table, may we do so in honor and respect and worship to you, our God. But also with a true love and sincerity for our brothers and our sisters in Christ Jesus. For those among us who don't know this glorious gospel. They might first bow their heads and hearts to God, even in these moments. And they might call upon Jesus as Lord and be saved from their sins and set free to become part of your people, to be given the right to be called children of God. Thank you, Father. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. May you come.